Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. So, do you want marketing made simple? Shopify removes the guesswork with built-in tools that help you create, execute, and analyze all your online marketing campaigns. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash income. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Broadway Podcast Network presents Giants in the Sky. How Sondheim and Lapine went into the woods with me, Ben Rimmelauer. Today's guest, David Warren, assistant to the director at the Old Globe and on tour. Once upon a time. David Warren worked as assistant to director James Lapine on Into the Woods in its Playwrights Horizons workshop, Old Globe World Premiere, and later on its original national tour. Having earlier assisted Lapine on the La Jolla Playhouse production of Merrily We Roll Along. David quickly matriculated to directing on his own, and his long resume includes Broadway productions of Summer and Smoke and Holiday, national tours of Copacabana and Jekyll and Hyde, the world premieres of Bruce Sussman and Barry Manilow's Harmony and William Finn's Romance in Hard Times, and an extensive list of acclaimed off-Broadway shows at both commercial and non-profit venues, including the drama department of which he is a founding member. He is particularly known for his collaborations with Nikki Silver, helming the original productions of The Altruists, The Eros Trilogy, Fit to be Tied, Raised in Captivity, and Pterodactyls, for which David won the 1994 Obie Award. David is also a prolific television director with dozens of credits on major series. As soon as you called him, I started to think about it I couldn't believe how long ago it was and how little I remember. I mean, I remember a lot, but it's not, as you said, it's not like the internet. It's not like there, nobody took pictures. Nobody posted. All this magic happened in these rooms. um, And all we have really is our memories. So it's cool that you're going to kind of create an archive of them. Thank you. Well, and thank you for your participation. And um, that I'm, I'm sure that, you know, we all wish we had memories more uh, agile than we do, but uh, I have noticed that people that were younger at the time 
of the show, both because they're younger now, so they yeah. might have stronger memories now, but also, you know, if, if it was a more kind of seminal experience for someone who's just starting out, you know, you went on to have um, a major career as a director on stage and screen, but this was, you know, before really most of that had really gotten cooking. So, you know, I'm sure you had a unique perspective entering into this experience. Yeah, I mean, it, it was, it, James Lapine kind of gave me a career. He made me a director. I, I didn't, you know, I did. I didn't go to school for directing. I didn't go to graduate school. I kind of went to the school, the school of hard knocks, combined with the school of James Lapine and Des Mackinoff, and just being lucky enough to assist those two guys. Um, I, I really, I need to preface anything I can say about this show with the fact that I really was like, I was an extra, you know, in a big movie. I mean, I was James's assistant, so. Uh, maybe at best a fly on the wall, um, but I, I can't imagine that I have much to add to, you know, what Chip, Joanna, James, those people had have to say, but uh, you know, what I can kind of give you is what it felt like to be, I was really, I was a kid. Um, and I, I, I sort of woke up every day going, I can't believe I have this job. Um, so, so yeah. Okay, set that up for me. Um, you know, okay. give me the context. Where were you in your life when you first heard that there was such a thing as this fairy tale musical? Okay. Uh, well, I had, I was struggling to become a, a director in New York. I was very young. I was probably 23, 24. And um, I was making a living working in for set designers and uh, doing props Um and trying desperately to figure out, like, how do I get out of that rut? Um, well, it wasn't a rut, or how, how does this not become a rut? And uh, I spent a summer at La Jolla Playhouse as a set design assistant, basically like a slave in the design department, um, just to be around theater. And it was the summer that Des did uh, Big River. Mm-hmm. And it was a very cool summer. I mean, um, I mean, it was a beautiful, it was an amazing theater and it had just reopened. It was very vibrant and exciting. And I, on the last day of my, of basically the last day of my time there, I got up all my courage and I went up to Des and I said, I don't want to be a set designer. I want to be a director. Could I ever assist you? And he said, well, you know, we mainly, we, we use the UCSD grad students. Um, and I thought, oh, <laughs> I'm going back to the poor house um, and the rich kids will get this job. Um but he said, you know, there's some some possibilities. And like two weeks later, he called me and he said, James Lapine is rewriting Merrily We Roll Along with Stephen Sondheim. Would you be interested in assisting him? Because it the schedule doesn't line up with our, sort of the academic schedule. So a UCSD student can't do that AD job. Uh, and I said, oh, yes, I'd be very interested. Um and I met James and, you know, I, 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 I don't know what I pot, I, I don't know what I could have said because it's not like I could say, here's how all the job, I've never assisted a director. Um, I'd never done anything really except, you know, build set models. But James, um, as I'm sure you know, comes from a design background because he was a graphic designer. And I guess something about that and something about who I was, we kind of cl- clicked. And I, I mean, I just loved him instantly. I just found him so fascinating and um, a little cold, which I loved, and just funny and cool and smart and hilarious. I just, I, I loved him. 
And I wanted the job desperately and he gave it to me. So I worked on that show in La Jolla and uh, that's how I got to know James and, and, and Steve Sondheim a little bit, you know, as, as, a, as I said earlier, as an extra in the movie. Um, and when they started to work on Into the Woods, um, I, I kind of, you know, it's not like James and I were friends, but I was aware of what he was doing. Um, and he in, asked me to assist him on the very, very first readings at Playwrights Horizons when it didn't have any songs. Um, and that's where my, those are the, that, that chapter, it's not like I was on drugs because I wasn't, but it's so long ago. Uh, I know, I remember that, I remember, you know, Chip and Joanna and Robert Sean Lennon was, Leonard was Jack. Um, and uh, it was this fascinating thing that I thought like, how's this going to work? And is there going to be a second act? Because there wasn't really a second act. Um, and it was just basically, as I'm sure James told you, you know, this kind of Jungian, uh, Bruno Bettelheim inspired examination or cracking open of fairy tales. Um, but as soon as, you know, he's such a great writer, um, it was, or even without the songs, it was fascinating. And as I, I'm sure you know, their process, James and Steve's process, it was very much about James writing things. Uh, much of which became the book and much of which was kind of devoured by Stephen Sondheim and turned into songs, which of course he wrote and he wrote the lyrics, but it would be a, uh, it would be beats, big beats. So that was pretty cool. Um, and that evolved into a second reading, at, also at Clarence Horizons. And there were so some songs in the first act. Um, and Betty Buckley played the witch. I remember that because um, I was very like in awe of her and they, they would send me to pick her up in the morning <laughs> because she's she's the greatest, but she tends to be she runs late and Betty and I are really good friends. So I'm not speaking out of turn. She would uh, she would agree that she runs a little late, um, but she's the greatest. Uh, and Chip and Joanna. And I boy, I can't remember who who the heck else was in it, but you probably someone has told you. Well, there's a lot of uh, confusion about these uh, Player at Horizons readings. Um, there were there were two. Well, I knew there was like the earliest one, and then there was the one that was more of like a little reading 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 with people right. learning music. So, like, I know that that um, second reading that they called a workshop, because I think it was, like, a couple of weeks of rehearsal, it was Betty as the Witch. Chip was not in it. It was Joanna, but Ray Gill was the baker. And um, that... Oh, is that true? Yeah, I mean, that was rather Ray, well Ray documented. Did the Pardon me? Ray did, the, Ray did the national tour later, and I must have known... I, 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 yeah, but I, that, I think that's maybe why I didn't even remember. So who else? And who like who was who was the mysterious old man? So uh, like uh, Cinderella was Mary Darcy. Um, the narrator was Bob Gunton. Wait, this one I can actually like pull up. This one is. Have you ever heard of this website? Uh, overture dot com. It's like <laughs> overture with no e's, and um, it lists. It's like. A database of theater productions, not just Broadway and off Broadway, um, but uh, really uh, detailed stuff. So, okay, this cast was um, John Cunningham was the narrator, 
and uh, right. also the wolf and also the steward. Um, oh, no, excuse me. I'm looking at the old globe. Don't even that erase, was, erase what I just that, said. That's definitely the old globe. Yeah, I'm jumping ahead. I don't I don't want to go there yet. Okay, Playwrights Horizons. Uh Ray okay, the Baker. Mary uh the narrator was Bob Gunton. Robert Sean Leonard was Jack. Danielle Ferland and Barbara Brin. The princes were um Howard McGillan and um uh Patrick Quinn. Um okay. Betty was the witch. And wait, where's the mysterious man? Was John Carpenter, who also played Cinderella's father. Um but the reading before that, the one you described with no music, which I think was in November or December of 85. Um, that's, the, that's the murky one. Yeah, that's the nobody one. knows who played the witch. Uh, Christine Estabrook was uh, the baker's wife. And um, Chip played one of the princes. And apparently James was very unhappy with him. Um, and... Yeah. Uh, I, there's almost like no Danielle is Danielle was a little red, and uh, she thinks Robert Sean Leonard was also Jack in that first reading. Only because Bob and I became friends, uh, and also maybe just because I, I was so young. I was so young that like it seemed like oh, I should be friends with Jack. Yeah, <laughs> it's like the only person I could play with. Um, I, I remember very. I absolutely remember that it was Bob. Uh, and Danielle in that very first reading, but then that, yeah, and that that one it's so funny and that everybody's a little vague about it. It was very fast. It really was just reading something that James had written. Yeah, um, and it went fast. It, I don't. I mean, I don't think there was even maybe a quick, a few hours of rehearsal and then just a reading. Yeah, it was like a, almost a cold reading. But that workshop was when it began. Uh, you know, that was the first real trying to think of a metaphor a birth metaphor but a birth is like it only happens once so it's not really yeah. a good i can't find it it's like the first labor pain i don't know yeah maybe the, the heartbeat you. or the ultrasound or something um the first the first sex yeah the first yes. the first population yes um well we, we could beat this metaphor to death but um uh so that was in i think june of 86 and then that workshop yeah, and then you guys uh, opened in um, San Diego in, I think, November or December of 86. Yeah, and, and you know, again, just like it, the, my personal recollection was, um, like, I knew I had had, I had sort of tasted how magic this show was. I, I just knew, and, you know, I said to James, please, can I assist you in, in, at the Globe? And he said, oh, I love it. Uh, and then he called me and said, you know, they don't, they, they just want to give me an intern. They don't have any money for it. And I said, uh, you don't, I don't, you don't need to pay me. Um, and let, give me, give me two hours uh, and I will come back with a proposal. And I called the, um, one of the like board members of the La Jolla Playhouse, who I kind of gotten to know, who was insanely rich um, and said, could I stay in your house be, to work on this show uh and she said of course you can and you can have we'll give you a jaguar and uh that we'd be so honored so i came back to james and i said i you don't have you don't have to pay me i don't want to get paid i just want to work on the show uh if they'll fly me out there and then you know he's he's so like he's just so funny and 
uncuddly, but in his way, like a big, like so sweet. And he came back and called me back and he said, well, yeah, they'll fly you. And of course you're not going to do it for free. We'll I'll figure something out. It's just too pathetic. Uh, you know, I think I probably $25 a week. But it was the theater and I was really in it, not just on the edge. So I was like so excited. Um, and then, yeah. And then, and I, I, again, this is probably going to be, there's probably like a lot of crisscrossing, possibly uh, conflicting memories. What I, I remember, there were still almost no songs in the second act uh, when we went into rehearsal. Um, and there's certainly, and this this I remember perfect. There were none of the like the money songs, right? Um, in the set in the second act, the first act was pretty much ready to go. Um, and uh, like I know, I mean, I know no more wasn't in wasn't written at the first by the first rehearsal. I know that uh, no one is alone, which you know I th- I feel like that's the show. I mean, there's so many in the second act, there's so many moments in the second act that make you feel like, oh, now I understand this show. Now I know what the show's about. But No One Is Alone, for me, was the one. Mm-hmm. And um, that was written, I'm almost positive, uh, during previews. I yeah. remember we opened when it wasn't written. Yeah. And then there was the, the moment that no one will ever forget when Steve came into rehearsal with it. Um, that was, I mean, I can't think about it without starting to cry. Wow. So just backing up into that rehearsal process, I think you guys rehearsed in New York at the Westbeth uh, for that production. Yes. Yeah, the Westbeth. Um, so funny. Um, I had forgotten that. <laughs> uh, but only, only James Lapine and Stephen Sondheim could tell a, re- a resident theater, we don't want to rehearse in your city. Yes. <laughs> and, get, and, and, be, and, and be told, okay. Um, and they were told, yeah, that's right. We were, so we rehearsed there. Um, Actually, I'm jumping the gun because some people have talked to me about before those rehearsals started, that there was a sort of um, staging workshop, lowercase w, at the Westbeth with NYU students, where, as yeah. it was described to me, James wanted to see whether he could do the musical staging without a choreographer. And I guess he was satisfied enough with what happened in that process that he went to San Diego with no choreographer. Does that ring a bell at all? Yes, exactly correct. Um, I, I was not part of the NYU thing. Mm, okay. Um, for whatever, I, I can't remember why. Um, but I do remember there was no lore. Yeah, right. In- so, okay, and um, then rehearsals start at the West Beth. And I mean, uh, you know, you'd you'd worked on that that merrily, um, which for whatever changes were being made was a you know at least a it was a full script even if the script was in flux. What what what? what how was, it was your a full, mind? It was a full it was a full score. But yeah. James really was so. I mean, I I had sort of been in I'd been part of James's process as a writer as a book writer um, and director. Uh, but certainly not that it, that is not the same as, you know, the magic. Because I'd never seen a musical kind of be born, so it was all very. I can't believe I'm here. Had you been like a Sondheim nerd, kind of like in the years prior to that? No, no. I mean, I, I and I also I think, kind of think that's another reason James hired me. I I really did. I was not particularly into musicals. It wasn't my mm. thing at all. I was much more into rock and roll. Um, 
I mean, I'd seen a bunch of musicals because uh, I, I liked, I loved theater um, and I, and I had a, a connection to musicals, but it wasn't my thing. And I wasn't like a Sondheim groupie, although it was, you know, it was impossible not to be, I don't even know what the word is, not just intimidated, but kind of in awe of and stunned by him. And then, you know, once I started, once I started to work on Merrily, then I went back and I studied uh, his work so that by the time we did uh, Into the Woods, I, I, could, I, I knew everything about his work and uh, was even more in awe of and terrified. Um, and he was very nice, but you know, it was just, you know, like when I got, the first time I got a message from him on my answering machine, I came home and my roommate in our like crappy little East Village apartment was like just standing in the living room. He said, Stephen Sondheim just called you. You got to call from Stephen Sondheim. And I played <laughs> David, Steve, what the hell were we, what time were we rehearsing tomorrow? Can you give me a call? Uh, I kept that, you know, grumpy nothing message for about 12 years <laughs> <laughs> i mean so having done like your homework on those sondheim shows before that were you sitting in there uh in those rehearsals you know uh having moments where you thought oh wow this giants in the sky or you know maybe they're really magic or you know that the, the oh this is this is gonna go in that same canon or was it still kind of like mm, we'll see if this show can work you know uh to be a hundred i thought it was amazing like i didn't know that that meant it's going to work or be successful or that everybody would like it but there was never a second where i didn't think this is the most amazing thing i've ever heard or one of the most amazing things i've ever heard it was puzzling you know how you know bookie the second act was so it's hard to be like this thing is going to sail to broadway yeah um but there also was something about the first act that was so complete um in a way that felt almost as much like a glitch as you know uh, a feature only because it made the second act seem like it needed so much more work Uh, in the end it didn't need so much more work it just needed what it got which was Steve to write some of the most beautiful songs he's ever written Um, but so it's interesting I don't remember thinking I, I certainly wasn't presumptuous enough to say like I know this is is or isn't a hit I know I couldn't uh, have been more moved and uh, just devastated by how beautiful it was. Like being in the room and hearing those voices and hearing hearing Chip and Joanna really like find out who those characters were because they really that, that they sort of nailed it at the workshop and they stayed and they just they they got better but they were they they kind of it was very Venus on the half shell with those mm. two. Yeah. So I, I guess long, but that's a really long, I don't even know if I answered your question. I knew the first, I knew it was amazing. Uh, I knew I loved it. And I knew the first act was, seemed like perfection. And I had no idea, uh, even going into rehearsal, how the second act would work with it. Uh, would it defeat it? Would it do what it, I, I certainly didn't think it was, would do what it did, which was make it a masterpiece. 
For the last time, I am not on Ozempic. I made one little joke on this podcast, and everybody started calling me out, texting me, calling me cringe, whatever. I really was asked by people if I was on Ozempic, and as I told them, I am not. I am just eating factors, no prep, no mess meals, okay? Warmer, sunnier days are coming. Fire Island season is here. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. Make today the day you can kickstart a new healthy routine what are you waiting for with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week you'll always have new flavors to explore crush your wellness goals this may with dietitian approved meals and ingredients you can trust from breakfast to dessert stay fueled with easy nutritious options treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon shrimp and blackened salmon and kitchen time is kept to a minimum they are ready in two minutes no shopping no prepping no cooking no cleanup enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle choose from six menu preferences to help you manage calories maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or just simply to eat well-balanced. Head to factormeals.com slash giantsinthesky50 and use code giantsinthesky50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code giantsinthesky50 at factormeals.com slash giantsinthesky50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And aside from what you thought in in your opinion at the time, but what do you recall observing uh, James and Stephen doing in terms of, you know, did you think, God, these masters are flummoxed trying to crack this nut or they've got it in their head and they're just figuring it out on stage or, you know, what was the process you were witnessing? I think I witnessed, I certainly didn't feel like they were flummoxed. I think, uh, I, th- I think it was two great artists, uh, one of whom, you know, was obsessed with puzzles. Um, it, solving a puzzle. Like it, yeah. It didn't, it never felt like, well, also neither of those two men, certainly not uh, James, like panic isn't really one of their colors. Yeah. Uh, like James is so, look, uh, he's so, um, I mean, if he has, if he experiences panic, I, I don't know. He processes it in a way that's different from other people. He's just very uh, even keeled uh, and droll about problems. Uh, it's something I really like loved about him and looked up to and for a long time thought, because that's not who I am. I wish I could be more like that. Mm. Um, but I do, I think they struggled. I mean, I know, you know, they, until the song arrived, there wasn't a song and without a song, there's a hole. And, um, so there were a lot of holes, but uh, I, I, 
it, it never occurred. It didn't feel to me like, oh, they're not going to get there. It felt yeah. like I can't wait to see how they get there because, you know, and, and one by one, as those songs arrived for the second act, one was more beautiful than the next. And, you know, there was a few that weren't never arrived in that, as I'm sure you know, you know, like there wasn't that amazing witch lament that wasn't there. There was a, a rap, um, boom crunch. I'm pretty sure it was called. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, and they, but they got, I got, I think I would say they got about 80% there, 75, 80%. In San um, Diego. Yeah. And what about in terms of trial, in terms of trial and error, did you see them like, you know, were there things that, that we don't know about even that they sort of, you know, experimented with and then, you know, retracted? Mainly just like book stuff. Um, yeah. You know, like the Baker and Cinderella's relationship, trying different colors for that. I remember, um, I don't, I don't remember them cutting any song, like bringing in a song and then saying this doesn't work. Uh, everything that, everything that, everything new that got written. I mean, I, I do remember there were cuts because the first act, you know, I, it, the first act was like two and a half hours or something. Um, <laughs> it was very long. Uh, and <laughs> that combined with the problems in the second act really made it feel like people are going to think, why am I coming, what am I coming back for? Yeah. Um, so I know cuts, um, but I, it was, it was, it, it, it what I remember, and I have never thought about any of this, and because it's, I just never have, but thinking about it now, what I remember feeling was this miraculous forward motion with that mm. show. Like I never felt wandering, they were wandering in the woods. I never felt they were spinning their wheels. Yeah. I just felt like one by one, these songs appeared uh, that were beautiful in a way that was different from how beautiful the first act was. Mm. Um, and then, you know, leading up to uh, No One Is Alone. And that that's when I just, that's when I thought this is the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. And I, you know, I just felt so honored to be in the room. That That's a comment. It seems like that's a real uh, thread among everyone that was present at that particular rehearsal. And then in the process in general, that that, that was you cannot, you can't imagine what it felt like be, because it was like, it wasn't just the piece of how miraculously it was the, jigs, the jigsaw puzzle piece that had a, you know, a, a, needed to be exactly that shape. It wasn't just that. It was also, you know, Stephen Sondheim with his terrible, craggy old man singing voice. Like he was such a bad singer, just sitting down and singing the mo the wisest most beautiful thing I, I think maybe that he's ever written he's written other things equally beautiful but nothing more beautiful um and just looking around the room and seeing everybody just crying like a room full of like even james i think probably teared up yeah <laughs> and he's so he's so not a crier no although maybe he's a lot older now he could he, he could be a, he could have he, could, he might be more of a softie yeah he definitely was softy back then no and then what about like in terms of were these songs prescribed? Were there a lot of conversations before No One Is Alone showed up about what that moment needed that then you were waiting for Steve to deliver? Or I think, to be honest, most of that conversation was very private and between those the two yeah. of them. Yeah. 
So what I would get would be, you know, James's funny spin on the meeting that they had a conversation that they had, you know, well, he's never going to write that song. Um, knowing he would. And, but, but I, I, so I don't know. I, I know, um, I know they would have meetings alone. Mm. Um, it's not like, you know, anybody else was giving them notes. Uh, although James was very open, particularly as a director, you know, Jack yeah. O'Brien gave notes yeah. and Jack was a very, um, he was such a cheerleader for the project. Yeah. So, but, but, you know, that kind of the mysterious, uh, how did they write the songs? If, I don't know if anyone has told you they were there and they know how it happened. I wasn't. No. I only saw them in uh, and see how, you know, they, how magically uh, Steve would just slowly and steadily solve the puzzle. And what was your job uh, assisting James? You know, did, were you taking notes on blocking? Were you running errands? Were you, you know, what, were you going to run scenes with actors in another room? What was your responsibility? It was, it was, well, it wasn't, it was definitely wasn't like personal assistant yeah. stuff. I mean, just because, again, James was so private, like, yeah, I, I would actually, tr I tried very hard to get him to ask me to do stuff like that because he was, he was doing two gigantic jobs. Um, and uh, I would, you know, I would occasionally do stuff for him. We need, we need, we need, the, we need a gaffer to come in and put up a flag. Um, he, but uh, I was with him all the time in rehearsal um, and I would take, you know, endless notes uh, I was more his, uh, I was his directing assistant because his writing process, he just didn't, he he never had a writing, a writer's assistant, uh, as far as I know. So I was, you know, in the room with him uh, all the time. When we did the national, the first national tour, he did actually, it was, I, 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 well, I, we'll talk about that later, but I did, you know, get to kind of be his assistant director um, which was a huge promotion. Uh, but in, in, at the Globe, I, I was just his ass directing assistant yeah. next to him all the time. Uh, I, 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 I introduced him to a note giving system that Des Mackinoff created that he fell in love with. And that became, it's, it, it, I, I, it does, I know it came from Des and Des got it from someone in Canada. Uh, but it's now become the kind of gold standard of theater note giving. Say more. It's having on a little notepad. Um, this is during like a run, starts run throughs and goes through previews and not a big pad where you write all the notes on one on a pad. You have a little, you know, this is a notepad where you, and the idea is the director gives the assistant a, a note one at a time as the show, as, as it's, as the thing is proceeding. Oh, uh, Cinderella, pick up cue after da, 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 da. And you write C and that note, and then you flip the page. Uh, and the next note is on its own page. So you have one note per page. And then the minute the rehearsal, the run through or the preview or the dress rehearsal is over, the assistant takes the notes and sorts them into piles. Unless there's the director says, Oh, I want to give, I'm going to do a note session. 
and I want to, I'm going to have everyone together, at which point you still have the notes that way. And the great thing is, as the director gives the note, you give the actor or mm. the set designer or the stage manager the notes, and then they get a little pile. But it's particularly useful when there isn't going to be one of those. And, De, uh, you know, Des or James would say, you know, meet me at the theater at 645, and we could go from person to person, and there'd just be a little pile. Um, so basically, the challenge for the assistant was always, you know, keeping up uh, and learning how much I would have to write to know what I what it what it meant, and then go back later and turn what sometimes was like some kind of a strange glyph into uh, into an actual note. Yeah. Uh, so I did that with James, and he loved that, and that was my gift to him. Um, and uh, yeah, just lots and lots of notes, a little a, a little bit take you know occasionally. Because Stephen came to, he didn't bring an assistant. Um, occasionally, I would, you know, go to his hotel room and, like, he would hand me sheet music, and I, it would be like this. I, I couldn't believe, like, to go get it copied, um, and it was incredible. That was always incredible, and I'll never forget. Like one time, I didn't bring it right back, and it's he called and he said you've still got pages da, 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 da. like he he knew i think part of it was he sort of knew it was like picasso like everybody wants to steal his sheet music because <laughs> who wouldn't want like imagine having a sheet uh, you know like a, the original version of no one is alone like one page of that would be you know the mind boggles um and i think i was just held up doing something and i was like got back to him a little bit late um but he remembered perfect. He knew exactly what he had left his home in terms of originals. Yeah. Um, and one time I was charged with bringing him to a restaurant and I thought it was, and this was when I thought maybe I had, my career was over and I'd never work in show business again because, you know, Stephen is, was a great, a genius, but he was a little like, like a lot of geniuses. There were things he wasn't good at. And I guess I slightly overestimated his ability to kind of, it, receive information like the it's that restaurant across the street like I got him I walked him I drove him to the street parked the car got out of the car and said it's that restaurant and didn't wait and I like an hour an hour later James called me and he said you know Steve got lost and he's never, and James you know th this was his evil side and said and he's never going to speak to you again and <laughs> I went into like a shame spiral uh, thinking what it was, it was Saturday night, which is why they went to dinner. What can I do? How can I make this right? And I had this, in, and I was up all night, all night. Ah. And at like five in the morning, I thought the New York times, the Sunday times. And I went to a new, went to a newsstand and I bought the Sunday times and I left it outside his hotel room with a note saying, please forgive me, David. And I got, like an hour and a half later, I got this message, which was, well, no, not a message. He just called me and he said, David, it's Steve. And well, I was prepared to never forgive you, but you are forgiven. Like it was, it, the New York Times was the thing. And that's why I have a, that's why I wasn't banished from show business. Because you're smart. Um, so, okay. A lot and of a little, And a little lucky. And a little lucky. And like a little he, lucky. He had not to have it delivered. Yes, right. Um, uh, so a lot of things were changed from the Old Globe production uh, prior to Broadway. Um, some, uh, for example, the um, 
uh, Rapunzel had been played by Kay McLelland in addition to playing Florinda. Um, she was Florinda, not Lucinda. But right. right. She was Florinda. Um, I just remember because Lauren starts with an L. That was my my. Oh, I remember too. Lucinda <laughs> Lauren. That's right. Um, but uh, do do was do you remember conversations about that decision, or was that always the intention, and it was just a cost saving tactic at the Old Globe? No, I I mean I you know I, I'm sure you know I wasn't the assistant director on Broadway because I didn't want to I I really needed to kind of cut the umbilical cord and uh, not be a, an assistant, and I had started to direct, so it was a big scary decision. Um, so. You'd have to, what you have to do for to have to pick up the the narrative. You've got to get in touch with R.J. Cutler. Tell him I said he should talk to you because there's I can only take you so far along this road. Yes, um, this is an act one <laughs> act one conversation. Um, okay, so we won't get into although that. Although I did, did back to the project to do the tour uh, because James called me and, and said I really could use your help with that because RJ didn't want to do it. Uh, and he said, we have to put it up really fast and, you know, the show. And by that time I had started, you know, I had, I had given notes uh, several, I had given notes on the Broadway production because he would call, RJ kind of moved on pretty quickly. Um, and I had a relationship with this, this show and I, I tried, I thought about saying no. And then, I couldn't, and then it turned out to be really exciting because, you know, it was the tour was the three houses, and James would say, "You go, you do Jack's house, and I'll do uh, the Baker's house," um, and we, and I got to kind of help him remount it. Um, but then, but there's that big, you know, that big exciting Broadway phase involving Bernadette Peters, uh, who I only got to meet, you know peripherally so um okay so speaking of bernadette peters it was ellen foley playing the witch at the old globe um did you have a sense uh while you were in san diego that she was going to be replaced when the show went forward not i not because she wasn't she wasn't great. She actually was really great. Yeah, um, I got a sense that what I what I what I remember, and Ellen and I became really good friends. She was like one of the people I hung out with a lot. Yeah, um, I knew that they were they felt like the role had to become a much bigger part, mm. and instinctively knew it was going to, in a weird way, become the star. Yeah, um, if be a star in the show. Uh, and I, I kind of weirdly intuited that Bernadette Peters was going to play the witch. Um, and that if it wasn't Bernadette Peters, it would be, uh, you know, someone famous. Right. Um, but I had a, we, I just knew, and it's not that they ever said like, we're just, this is a role for Bernadette Peters and we're just asking someone to do it out of town. It wasn't that at all. You know, I just, I, I knew the role was going to develop. Um, I mean, when Betty Buckley did it, I remember she said to me, I will never play this part. Why, why would I want to play this part? I have a rap. I'm Betty Buckley. Give me a great song and I'll play this part. And she didn't say it in a diva way. She was right. It was, you know, if you have that voice, you have to write something for it. And the witch was a little bit in between 
the two stools in in San Diego. It wasn't as underwritten as it was during the workshop, but it certainly wasn't, you know, what it became. Yes. And so, um, well, uh, people have talked about the fact that Bernadette saw the show uh, purportedly at the Old Globe. Do you remember that? Yeah, of course. Um, I was there for the whole run. I was there for the whole run. Yeah. It was a very short run and we kept working on it. And I had, I was living rent-free in a mansion. Yeah. <laughs> Board member's house. So yeah. Why would I leave? But I mean, how I, this is the thing that I keep coming up against, like logically speaking, is like, are we really supposed to believe that Bernadette, who had had like a major triumph in their previous musical, Sunday in the Park with George, was sitting in the audience of this show where they knew they wanted a star for this role that they didn't have yet and that there was not a consideration that that was the star? Yeah, I mean, it, it, certainly people talked about that. Um, yeah. Honestly, I... It's it, it 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 was never uh it never felt like there was some there was a plan. Right. To I think there was a I think I think there was a lot up in the air. Um I also think to be, you know, just devil's advocate, uh she was very she and James were very, very close. She and Steve were very close. Yeah. And she and James are friends. Um so you know, as a as as a friend and as one of their great collaborators. Uh, it does make sense that you would go see the show. Lots sure. of times people can't went to Absolutely. Um, I, I think that combined with what what amused she was for both of them made a lot of us think, well, she's going to be the witch on Broadway. Right. Uh, including Ellen. I mean, I'm sure I'm sure Ellen yes. would the same thing. Well, no, Ellen did not know that there was a second workshop in New York the following summer with Betty Buckley. Ellen thought that she was just a placeholder for the part that Bernadette Peters was already going to play. I mean, it's like a conspiracy theory. If you talk to Ellen about it, about it. Um, But uh, I I don't think it was, to be honest. No, no. Well, because then I know I'm a little confused on the timing, but I know that at some point there was a lot of audition being held for different stars to play the witch. I know maybe you were there for some of that. Patty Lapone, Eartha Kitt, any of that. Um, Petula Clark, um, and uh, and most of them ended up playing it somewhere. I'm sure. Yeah, well, except Patty, um, not yet. But uh, so, and then also like, but I mean, the Bernadette thing. There's a little bit of like a contradiction in what the sort of stories that are told. Because on one hand, it's well, of course, we loved Bernadette. She was our muse, but this was too small a part. Bernadette could never play a part this small. But then I've heard from a lot of people, including just now you, the intention was to make the part bigger because they needed to have a star to play the witch. The, the, yeah, because that I mean, was the I, role that wanted a star, you know? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, uh, and a lot of that was just something that I intuited. Um, because again, yeah. I really was, it was James's assistant. I was not his friend. Yeah. Um, and I, it, you know, the, the show was so... In, it, it just kept getting everything they added made it better and and it was clear that you know someone was going to be singing more stuff um and so yeah i i I just intuited that that's what would happen um but as you said it it wasn't 
wasn't I, I don't think there was a plan because I think you kind of work on a show step by step. Um, it, it certainly wasn't like we're building a vehicle for Vernon Deputy no. and how no. to get there. Well, getting away from the casting then, so the run at the Old Globe ends at the beginning of January of 1987. At that point, what information did you have about what the next steps were, and when did you make your decision not to be a part of that? It was, uh, I mean, the Dodgers and Jujamson were obviously, they enhanced the out-of-town production and had every intention of doing it. And there was no doubt in anyone's mind that it was going to go to Broadway because it was so good and who players were. Um, And then it was just a question of, you know, what what do we need to do to go to kind of kick to get to reach the finish line that we're so close. um, But the second act isn't clearly isn't finished, finished. It's close to finished. um, And should we do another workshop? and then I, I, at that point, I realized I had to kind of get out of the James Lapine business just as, as an artist. Uh, also, just because I was so, I loved him so much. I was so in awe of him. I, it would have been very easy for me to have like become, to have lived in his shadow and as his, as his lifelong assistant. I mean, maybe he would disagree and say I couldn't stand him, um, but I don't think so. Uh, and I just, I knew, like, I had to, I had to, I had to take a chance. I had to, yeah. I had to kind of go back to zero because I wasn't, I was in this super fancy world of like Broadway and Broadway musicals and Stephen Sondheim, but I wasn't, I wasn't, it wasn't my work. Yeah. Um, and if I hung around it too long, I you would start to think, well, I don't want to go, why would I want to do a crappy little show downtown that no one's going to come to see, which is exactly what I wanted to do. And yeah. So, so that's when I, I just, I talked to James about it and he, he, you know, he actually really, he helped me get my first agent. He sort of mentored me on the very first show I directed in New York at the New York theater workshop. Uh, I owe him a lot. So he, he was very, he, of course he understood and he's not a very sentimental person. So it's not like he said, Oh, I'll miss you so much. But I like to think I felt, uh, you know, a certain amount of paternal uh, pride. Um, he And he has been lovely all along, ever since, in, in everything I've ever done. So your involvement ended when you left San Diego until later with the tour? Correct. Correct. Until later when you gave notes on Broadway. Um, you didn't do any of that, the workshop or the choreographer auditions or any of that stuff that was happening in 1987. Um, Interesting. Um, so then what did you, were you invited to the Broadway opening? I mean, were you like friend of the family? What was your relationship to this Broadway show? Uh, it, 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 my relationship to it was very bittersweet because yeah. when, as soon as I went, I went to a preview and I wasn't prepared for how, you know, perfect it had become. And, you know, so I thought I want to be working on this show. But I was I was doing some cool stuff as a director by that point, um, and uh, it was the right decision. Yeah, but it was sort of fun actually going back and seeing it because it was easier to. Um, I guess it's, it's a little you know you 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 can see the forest a little better 
mm. uh, for the days with any yeah. amount of distance. I have no real distance from Into the Woods. I've seen it a billion times in regional theaters, beautiful revivals of it. Yeah. And the minute it starts, I, my eyes sort of tear up and I, I'm in love with it from the first note until the end. Uh, that said, I could also appreciate how in some very subtle ways and in you know really huge ways it became a it went from being this beautiful flawed show to a masterpiece yeah and i in retrospect it would have been fun to have seen all that happen too but yeah yeah um it's interesting i mean you said the thing about um a similar take when you left your job as like a props assistant and you know uh that you're it seems like you're someone who errs extremely on the side of not getting into a rut, you know, that you wouldn't, you, you wouldn't have even just seen this one show through to Broadway as the assistant, you were just out. Um, I think uh, for better, yeah, no, I, I think for better. I think that is how I, yeah. because being the assistant to the director, it's not like being a stage manager who is a key player, right. you know, you're part of the family, but it's, uh, it's it's not what I what you want to do if you yeah. really are an artist. Yeah. So when you do it at that high a level, um, I it's it's very tempting. It's very seductive. Yeah. But you resisted. Um, so then, uh, but you saw your predictions came true. I mean, then you know you heard Bernadette's playing the witch. I mean, who? I almost I want to ask you who's going to like win the Super Bowl or you know who's going to be the next president. Um but uh what at what point did you come back and and do notes with James during the run? It's hard for me to remember at what point I it was sometime before uh we did the tour. So if you look at the chronology yeah um that's the whole first year of the Broadway run. Yeah, I I know he, you know, because there it was when 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 like when Marin was playing Rapunzel. Yeah, uh, and I knew Marin because she was in uh, Merrily We Roll. Yes, Along. yes, and it was her first big job. It was my first big job, so we uh, we bonded deeply. Um, so, yeah, so I remember that. Uh, hanging out, doing around that. I don't remember when Marin went in, but I know that around the time I started doing notes occasionally with James. Um, and by that time, he, I had sort of graduated to, like, he would even say, like, why don't you go? There were some people, like, I couldn't give notes to, um, but there were some people I could, like Marin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, and then, uh, so when you got the job to be the assistant then on the tour, um, what what do you remember about that process, Cleo Lane? And uh, well, one thing about the tour I'm especially curious about is that um, uh, Ira White, well, James had spoken extremely highly to me about uh, Ray Gill. Um, and uh, Ira and Ira Weitzman and Chip both talked about how James was so in love with Ray as the baker in the workshop that he was resistant to cast Chip as the baker, which of course is mind blowing to everybody who thinks of Chip as the, you know, definition of the baker. Um, but then uh, 
like Mary Gordon Murray talked about how, even though she had been a replacement Baker's wife on Broadway, that the take for the national tour was not these sort of New York Jews that Chip and Joanna uh, characterized, but that they were this sort of middle American couple with Ray and, and, and her. Um, does any of that strike a chord? 100%. I mean, it's interesting, you know, like casting is so fascinating. Ray and Chip are actually nothing alike. Hey. Um, Ray is more like James Lapine. I mean, James mm. Lapine is Jewish, but he's not. He's not New York Jewish. He's very, no. very waspy. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know he was Jewish until I started doing this podcast. Oh, see, there you go. Yeah. Um, he, Chip was magic, um, and I think sometimes. I know this has happened a lot with writers um, that I've, like I worked on, when I worked on Desperate Housewives, Mark Cherry would say all the time, like I never imagined uh, Marsha Cross as Brie because she 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 was too warm. And everyone was like, but what was so funny about her, she wasn't very warm. And he was like, well, but my mother is much colder. And <laughs> the cool thing was, that Marsha played all the cold, hilarious colors uh, in Brie that Mark had written, but she also brought this humanity, uh, just an innate humanity that made Brie uh, even more interesting than Mark knew she was, and he loved it. Uh, It was a great surprise. It makes you realize, you know, he saw one thing that I'm sure would have worked, but then the actor sort of, brings it in a slightly different direction mm. that makes it something that's really actually better than what the writer saw in their head. And uh, I think Chip did that. You know, I think Chip just turned that character into this um, something we'd never seen, really. Yeah. So, and then I think Ray Gill played the part it was like going back to the original idea of the part. Like Ray, Chip is sort of one of those actors who's like, part of his magic is he's so, like there's so much. uh, And yet it's all very disciplined and clear. And he's a great actor. It's not out of control, but he's he's almost like, he's like a chaos, a fascinating chaos. And again, he can play stillness. He can do anything. Yeah. But in neutral, he's neurotic. Yeah. Um, and Ray Gill in neutral was the literally the opposite. Ray Gill mm-hmm. was very still um, and uh, s- sort of uh, like stoic, which was funny because it allowed the the character of the baker's wife to be the slight, the eccentric, sort of funny Attican. He was the he was the straight man in the comedy team. Yeah. Uh, which is probably how it was originally conceived. And then it worked out miraculously on with the original cast because the rule would be, so who's got, who, you need a straight man. And neither of them was, they were both the clown. Yeah. Um, but if anyone was a little bit the straight person, it was weirdly, it was Joanna because mm-hmm. she was, her comedy is so dry. Yeah. Uh, and then I think that flipped and that was fascinating and really fun to see. Mm. Um I love that. I, I, you know, Cleo Lane was so great because she really did. She really, she had permission to kind of 
I mean, you sing Steve's music exactly how we wrote it, but she, it sounded really different. I mean, mm. it sounded, it really did sound like a jazz singer playing, uh, playing the witch. Wow. And, um, uh, what about, uh, dramatically? Was there, was there something else that was notably different about Cleo's performance? Or comedically? I mean, I think she was less funny, for sure. Yeah. I mean, less funny than either Ellen Foley or Bernadette Peters. She was, but she was, um, she was really moving. The thing about like, Bernadette Peters is, is there, there's a reason she's Bernadette Peters. She she can't she can do anything. Yeah, she really can. She she could play. You know, she could have played Juliet when she was that age. She could play Arcadna now. She can. She can. She played Mama Rose. She can do anything because she's such a great artist. Um, so that's it's you can't really if you compare any almost anyone to her, they're going to seem like oh well not quite as good um yeah. Leo brought was kind of a vocal magic and uh an enormous amount of heart for someone who is not an experienced actress she really did because she was an experienced concert performer she knew how to like send it out and mm. the audience just loved yeah. always loved her and what about uh charlotte ray i mean was <laughs> what was she like <laughs> It's like audience crack. I mean, for, because she is great, but also who she is. Yeah. So, I mean, they couldn't, it was almost, I would say almost to a fault in that, like she kind of kept stealing moments, not because she was doing anything, you know, hoary or inappropriate. It's just the audience loved, they, they were out of their minds because it was Charlotte Ray. Yeah. Um, and they only, there, that was, there was the kind of that, the, the, the starry first cast um, and, they only did it like a lot of them only did it until LA, as I recall. Um, mm -hmm. And then, uh, I, like I know, Charlotte left, Cleo left. Um, I think Bobby McNeil left. Yeah, a lot of people left. So, it, and then it kind of became the the very clear, clean, pure. What is this show on the page version of mm. Into the Woods? Um, and it worked like gangbusters. It worked like gangbusters with all that star power, but it also, it's such a beautifully written piece of theater that uh, it was, it, it kind of became a, a more of a, um, I don't know, just more of the, what it is on the page served up perfectly. That's an interesting way to put it. And certainly, um, uh, Betsy Joslin, who's the witch you're talking about in that replacement cast and, um, Mary Gordon Murray, like a lot, a lot of other cast members too, continued uh, Tracy Katz to recreate the roles in regional productions for years and years after that. I mean, it's almost like a, the tour gave birth to that. Um, did you revisit a lot over the run of that tour? Yeah, I mean, even though I tried to break up with James, yeah. um, <laughs> it, 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 it was hard also, but because he gave me a lot of responsibility on the tour, um, and I actually would go in and put in replacements, you know, like I remember I, I put it, I, I, I put in Doug Sills when he came in. Um, I think he opened I, it. But he was the Rapunzel Prince and then he got promoted. Oh, interesting. 
was he always right, the Chuck Chuck Wagner was the first uh, Cinderella's Prince and the Wolf on the tour um, after exactly. having Rapunzel's Prince, and exactly. Doug Sills was Rapunzel's Prince from the beginning. But then uh, Doug talked to me about how he didn't like playing the Wolf, and he only did it like as an understudy, like once or something. But so, uh, but maybe there was other yeah. replacements. Um, Bunch of replacements. Betsy came in. Yeah. Um, and I guess uh, Kathleen Roe McAllen was Cinderella, and then it was Joe Geddes. I, I, I know what I'm thinking. I'm thinking of I, when Doug left the show and his replacement, by that point, like James was way too busy with other stuff. Mm. And I remember her, I put in the Rapunzel Prince uh, uh, replacement, mm. which is sort of a tongue twister. <laughs> putting in the Rapunzel Prince replacement yeah um, and uh, so well that had to be more gratifying even though you hadn't broken up completely you know that you were yeah. you were actually directing actors and um, is that a very rushed, rushed process being um, uh, putting in replacements when you're on the road and you know yeah I mean it doesn't even on Broadway it tends to be yeah. you, when, when you hear when people tell you how much rehearsal time they had and that most of it was like, you know, with a stage manager holding a book. Yeah. Uh, and then they got, they got a put in. Um, and then they were on Broadway. So yes, it, it is like that. They, you know, the, and I think it was, I think the actors really liked having someone, we, we had a great stage manager. Stage managers are great at doing it, but also once they're, once they're, once they're in the show, the stage manager can watch it and watch for performance, but they have to watch everything. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I would go, it was also fun. What I liked about the tour was I liked that I got to direct the actors, you know, direct James's work, but realize his vision. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I got to work with the actors, but also like I would get to go to ta- like weird cities um, that I would never have otherwise, like Phoenix, Arizona. What is that going to be like? Yeah. Um, so that was sort of fun. And I went to a bunch of, and then, and, and so much of that and the cast at that point on, on tour, the cast is such a family. I'm sure they told you that, you know, cause they're always together. Yeah. Um, so when, you know, I would get to, I remember Phoenix and, you know, we would all go out. We went, we all went hiking in the desert, you know, they're, they're, they, they don't have other friends. So they hang right. out with each other. Yeah. Um, so I rejoined this little family that kept evolving but then once it, it, it didn't, there weren't a lot of changes once the first round of departures happened. Right. Interesting. Um, and then what about um, uh, later in your career? Did, did Was there ever the possibility for you to revisit Into the Woods? Did you ever want to uh, do Merrily or, you know, I mean, I know you've mostly worked not in musicals, but you did direct the tours of Jekyll and Hyde and uh, Copacabana, the previous Barry Manilow musical. Um, uh, Jekyll and, and, and Hyde with the great... Harmony. Pardon me? And I did Harmony. I did and Harmony. Harmony. Oh, at the, at, the, um, at the Old Globe, was it? La Jolla? It was at La Jolla, but I also I did it at... And then I did the Broadway production that shut down because it didn't have funding. That oh. was, and it was not fully realized. With Brian Darcy James. Wow. I had I had a decades-long connection with that show. That was a show that as much as I loved it, when, when the time came to just say, 
no more. I can't, I can't, I can't. And I love it. And I'm so glad it made it to, it, yes. it, it found its way to Broadway. But no, I, yeah, so yes, I did. I would say that I always dreamed of doing Merrily because I feel, I felt like James did such a great job with it. I never thought I would ever want to do Into the Woods because I don't think I could get out from under mm. uh, James Lapine's vision of it. It was really, it was, it was always fascinating seeing other productions. You know, he did, he, when he did the revival, he changed stuff, but it was still very much his sensibility. Yeah. And since then, I've seen, you know, directory, directors kind of take it in various directions and it kind of tends to always work because it's so great. Yeah. Um, but no, I never wanted to do Into the Woods. Um, I, I just don't think I could have, it would have been impossible to not hear. I can't, it's hard for me to not hear, you know, Chip and Joanna. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, as, as much as that, I think that that um, American Playhouse broadcast is such a gift to the generations. Um, it is so strange because anytime I see Into the Woods, it's not like a normal Broadway show that you're a fan of where you're comparing the people's vocal performances to the cast recording. I remember every one of Joanna's line readings and no Baker's wife, however wonderful will ever be able to get out from under that in my ear, you know? No, I mean, I think what you see is, well, I would say with another, with a, with another director who hasn't studied that production. Yes. Uh, and, you know, in a great actor, it does happen, and another kind of magic does happen. Yes, but for, both, for certainly for me, who has you know, just it, it, it's it's so imprinted that show yeah. is imprinted that James's version of it, having sat through it so many times, heard it so many times, watched it, you know, I knowing the staging inside out, uh, I could never have done. No, um, uh, is Merrily the number one Sondheim show you would want to do? Well, I feel like I guess some maybe finally now has a giant commercial hit production. So yes, God bless. Not for a while. Um, not but yeah, for that a was while. that was that was the show I always wanted to do. Yeah, uh, because I, I am I'm I'm glad it's a big hit on Broadway now because it should be. Truly, um, and then just another question: as for you, someone who who did imprint upon you the original Into the Woods. When you watched that uh, video production that James Lapine directed of the original production, what do you think we miss as as audiences who didn't get to see that production live and who've only experienced it on video? What is it that is not uh, transmitted? I mean, I don't think anything isn't transmitted. I think it's just something is different when you're in a room with it. Yeah. Um, and particularly into the woods, because, you know, I'm sure James talked to you about Bruno Bettelheim and how inspired he was by that book. Um, and there's a, and, and so I, you know, as his acolyte and mentor, I studied the book too. Mm. And there's, uh, there's something, there's a line in that book that the uses of enchantment um, that has stayed with me forever, which is, the reason uh, people tell fairy tales and stories in general, but particularly fairy tales, is because they are good to think with. They mm. help you understand. That. And so knowing that about the show, I've always felt I've always found it so moving to be in a room with a bunch of people uh, because that's what storytelling started out as. And that's what fairy tales are. They're thing that they were orally trans 
knitted. Um, so just being with people and watching them feel, feeling with them, what it feels like to be told those stories uh, mm. again in that way. You can't, you, that, I didn't, I didn't get that even in the movie, which is, it's, I think it's a great movie and it's a great movie musical, but there was something about James Lapine's production um, that I don't know if anything will ever be quite as good for me. Wow. Well, that's a wonderful place to end. I mean, I, I could just take up hours more of your time. Good thing you didn't do it on Broadway or I would never want to get off the phone with you. Um, no, but you go, go after that R.J. Cutler. I will chase I said him down. You. I will chase him down. Um, but I'm so grateful to you. This has been really, really terrific. And I know the, the listeners are going to love it so much. So uh, much gratitude. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Giants in the Sky, how Sondheim and Lapine went into the woods on the Broadway Podcast Network. Look out for episode 48 with Jean Louisa Kelly, the original Snow White. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.